All right. Well, it is so good to be with you this morning, especially as today we resume our series on the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. And it's a title of the series is Certainty, and it got its name, it was actually derived from Luke himself, who we had learned, and if we recall back in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, he would have said this orderly account, all these things have been written, it seemed good that he also would write all the following things closely, he followed them, and he would write this orderly account, this historical narrative, this what we would later be, be referring to as the gospel according to Luke, that he wrote this to the most excellent Theophilus, and uh, through uh, God's divine inspiration and preservation for you and I as well, that he may know the certainty of the things for which he had been taught. The certainty of the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's our prayer, our hope for all of us as well as we go through this series. That uh, we would all know the certainty of those things that we are taught about Jesus Christ through this gospel. And I would suggest that if you're someone here today who is a skeptic, who is doubtful, who is not yet a follower of Jesus, welcome we are hopeful that you will be, uh, have your answers, uh, your questions answered, and that you too would find certainty. And if you're someone who would say, I am a follower of Jesus, I am assured in who Jesus is and what he did for me, then our prayer is that you would grow in the understanding and the certainty of how that is lived out in our daily lives. And if you're either, but you're someone who's joined us over the past several months, and you just feel like you're kind of jumping in to part three of a four-part series... No worries. We can catch you up. All you need to know is that we began this series back in Advent with a short series on the birth of the Savior, uh, the first few chapters. And then in this past spring, we looked at the ministry of the Savior, which was Jesus's two and a half plus years uh, teaching, living, uh, disciples following in the region around and in Galilee. And now we begin the journey of the Savior, the journey to Jerusalem. We'll take a short break again at Advent in the new year. Uh, we will actually conclude on Easter Sunday with the passion of the Savior, those last few final days of Jesus' earthly ministry. So you're all caught up. We're ready to go, right? And so I'll mention also that you can even get further context and background in your study guide on certainty in your small group uh, sermon book. Uh, there's a copy online. You can download the e-copy. We also have copies at our resource center. They give you a little bit more background, including on our author, our Gentile physician friend, Luke, and all you need to know about that. So we'd love for you to pick up one of those and join in. All right. Back in the set, you can tell today I'm kind of a, a buckle up kind of day, right? Get your seatbelts on. Let's go. Uh, back in the sandals. Back in the sandals. Let's go. Jesus is nearing the end of that two plus year Galilean teaching ministry. And we read from Luke. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is so important. This is a major shift in the entire narrative. It is a turning point, a major transition in what Luke is sharing with us. It's the start of a next section. And really it's one that's best described as a, a travel journal. Really, we're going to see the phrases like as they were walking along, as they traveled on their way, as they moved up to Jerusalem. And in short, our time together this fall is a, a road trip. 
a road trip with Jesus. But also, compared to the first two years of ministry that we see throughout Luke chapter 3 through 9 or 10 there, there's this increased urgency. There's an increased tension in what we're going to see. And it's mostly due to the increased awareness of what awaited Jesus upon arrival in Jerusalem. So in other words, when we read he set his face to go to Jerusalem, what we're being told is he set his face to go to the cross. That's the context of what we're going to be seeing this teaching now for the next several chapters. And we're going to move from this time of amazement and wonder and growth of popularity that was all happening in Galilee to a time where uh, the teachings are going to be a little bit more weighty, a little heavier on repentance and readiness and awareness and, and his foretelling of his death and persecution. Okay? The catalyst also I think is really important for this is this, this whole transition, this he set his face to go to Jerusalem, seems to occur and be directly tied to what happens just prior to Luke telling us this. It's when Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And it was almost as if this recognition of Jesus as Messiah sets them on a new course. We read Jesus is, is, is teaching ministry two and a half years in Galilee. Peter says, you're the Messiah. It's almost like, aha, finally. And Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. And that's, that's where we are, toward the cross. And so we get to join Jesus and the disciples on this road trip with the objective of discovering how together the account of this journey some 2,000 years ago can be applied and lived out in our lives today. So I hope that sets the scene where we are. And we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, early on in this journey. And we read, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. You know, the disciples had many questions that they asked of Jesus. We see it throughout Scripture. But did you know that in only one time in all of the Gospels did they ask Jesus to teach them something? If it was me, I would have thought, Jesus, teach us how to teach like you. Jesus, teach us how to heal. Right? Jesus, teach us to be a rabbi. The only time they ever asked for specific instruction is teach us to pray. And I think from that, what we can conclude is that they had observed a lot of Jesus in two and a half years. And what they observed was that there was something really special about the prayer life of Jesus. There was something unique, something that they wanted as well. You know, they had commented on John's disciples praying. And this was different, though. Nobody prayed like Jesus. Jesus, teach us to pray. And in this season of increased urgency, I would think that what they saw in, in Jesus, what they noticed that he was strengthened every day on this movement toward the cross by his time in prayer. And maybe... Maybe if they communicated with God like Jesus did, then they also would be strengthened for this increasingly difficult path that they were on. I also like to note that, that words matter. Words matter here. Notice what they don't say. Notice that they don't ask Jesus to show them how to pray. They were Jewish. They had been around prayer their entire life in the synagogues, on the Sabbath, around the meals. 
Praying wasn't foreign to this group of men. It was, teach us to pray like you. That's a big difference. That's a huge When I was a kid, I still remember, it was back when uh, Major League Baseball player was still atop my, when you grow up, what do you want to be list. <laughs> right? And I remember specifically going to the library one day and finding a book, and I said, yes, this is it. It wasn't just another learn how to pitch book. This one was so, this was it. This was learn to pitch like Nolan Ryan. Okay, that's, that's what I need. The Nolan Ryan Express. One of the greatest of all times. Now, <laughs> you know this analogy breaks down right here, right? Because not, not all of us are blessed with a 100 mile an hour fastball. So, the beauty, though, is that the analogy relative to learning how to pray like Jesus never breaks down. That's available for all of us today. We've, and you know, you think about it, we've all been around prayer our entire lives as well. I would almost guarantee in some form or fashion, even if you're someone who says, I don't yet believe in Jesus as my personal Savior, I bet you've been around prayer your entire life. We know how to pray. The question is, do we desire to pray as Jesus prayed? And that's good news if we do, because this morning's passage, we are invited to listen in as Jesus teaches three really important principles on how to pray, how to do it, how to pray as he would pray. And the first is that Jesus teaches us a pattern for prayer. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. This initial instruction that Jesus is giving, it's a, it's a template. Okay? It provides a pattern of these prioritized categories that we are to pray through. And you might be thinking, oh, that's, that's the Lord's Prayer, right? It sounds like it, although it's shorter, and the words are different than the ones we normally say when we recite it together. It's the version we read in Matthew 6. But the pattern, the categories, are the same. And the implication, I think, is that Jesus seems to be more concerned about the various aims or categories, priorities of our prayers than to the adherence to exactness of words or specific phrasing. And so that's sort of the, if there's an elephant in the room question, maybe it's, so does that mean that we're not supposed to recite or repeat these sort of standard prayers with exactness of words? Is that wrong? I mean, does Jesus, he, he does say earlier, he says not to pray in vain repetition. He specifically says that. Does that apply to our softball team praying the Lord's Prayer? Does that apply to our child saying, now I lay me down to sleep? Does that apply around supper? God is great. God is good. It, it certainly could. It certainly could. Those could be vain repetitions. But only in the same way that all prayers can be. And the key, as with almost all of biblical instruction, we can boil down everything that we're commanded to do is the motivation of the heart. And we can be certain that a prayer rightly motivated, a prayer sincere, will never be vain. Will never be self-absorbed or worthless, as Jesus would say. And the bottom line, what Jesus is saying is, just mean it when you say it. 
Just mean it when you say it. Whether your prayer is a liturgical response as a congregation or if something you memorize verbatim or maybe it's something you've written down or something that's just free-flowing, mean it when you say it. Let the words of your mouth match the words of your heart. That's the most important parameter that Jesus places on prayer. You know, if you saw the title today and you said, teach us how to pray, and you thought, well, I'm, I'm excited because I'm going to come finally get some answers to the biblical specifics of kind of the mechanics of prayer. And I've always had this conversation at home about what's the right posture or what's the right style or what's the right length or any of that. And if you, um, if you came expecting that, you're going to be out of luck this morning. Because <laughs> here's the thing, we never get that. Watch this. Jesus, if you look at all, all through the Gospels, here's how Jesus prayed. He prayed sitting down. He prayed standing up. He prayed kneeling. He prayed falling prostrate. He prayed looking to heaven. He prayed bowing his head. He prayed in the morning. He prayed overnight. He prayed at supper. He prayed scriptures. He prayed repetitive phrases. He prayed long prayers. He prayed short blessings. And everything in between. <laughs> he prayed. And so I think, again, the lesson of that is that the way he prayed was never programmed and it was never, uh, never predictable. The prayer life of Jesus, in fact, I think most closely mirrors what pa the Apostle Paul is telling us. And he tells the Th uh, Thessalonians, he says to pray without ceasing. <laughs> Jesus basically just lived in and out of prayer throughout his entire walk. All these different kinds of ways. He said, they're okay, just keep praying them. And so here, though, he provides one way. He says, this is one of the ways that I would have you pray. Okay, and he gives us this pattern. So let's look at that briefly. Let's look at these aims within this pattern. First, he says, when you pray, let's keep it simple. Say, Father. Say, Father. And to appreciate how shocking the idea of addressing God as Father would have been to these early followers... We have to know that in all of the Old Testament, 75% of the Bible that we have, there's roughly a dozen references to God as Father. We enter Jesus, and when Jesus enters in, he refers to God as Father. He encourages it, he teaches it, and in the passages of the New Testament, there's over 160 occurrences of God as Father. Jesus has redefined our relationship with God, and he says, you have permission. You have the privilege. You have the gift of referring to God as Father, your Father. J.I. Packer, a brilliant theologian, author, pastor, he was once asked, he was once asked, what is a Christian? It's a great question, right? Sounds like a simple question as well. A lot of us would probably just say, well, it's one who follows Christ, right? That works. That's accurate. But Packer had this really deep understanding of what the biblical doctrine of adoption was throughout Scripture. What, what God's really doing when he adopts us in as children. And with that rich understanding, he said, the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. If you want to know how well one understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their Father. See, I think when we, we think seriously about prayer in the context of an ever-increasing relationship with our Father, we are on the verge of this monumental breakthrough. Because it's with that understanding that we finally realize that the primary purpose of prayer 
as Pastor Beatty talked about a few weeks ago in a wonderful Why Do We Pray uh, message. The primary purpose of prayer is not to get something, but to be with someone. It's huge. That changes everything. You kind of let that sit and think about that. The greatest reward of our time in prayer is communion with our Father. And yet God is no ordinary Father. He says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. And so here's that balance between relationship and reverence. Hallowed literally means to declare as holy, uh, to, to set apart, be sacred, revered. Jesus says we are to pray that God's name be hallowed. And on the surface, it sounds like we're making a personal acknowledgement. God, your name is honored before me. It is holy before me. And we are, but that's just sort of scratching the surface. That's, that's not all that this is getting at. What this is getting at is that we pray for God's name to be hallowed everywhere by everyone. It's a prayer for missions. It's a prayer for sharing our faith. It's a desire that God's name be set apart and be sacred in places where it's currently not. You know, another contemporary author, Pastor John Piper, has famously said, missions exist because worship doesn't. And I think for our purposes, it's also equally accurate to say that missions exist because God's name is not universally hallowed. So, Father, hallowed be your name. And then... Your kingdom come. Now, admittedly, there are two commonly held perspectives on what's being taught here. Personally, I believe both perspectives can be equally considered and prayed. And the first is this, is that followers of Jesus long for the coming kingdom. The, the King Jesus to return for us to dwell where there's perfect justice and perfect mercy, perfect grace. And I think that we see this when we think about Matthew 9 and Jesus is defending his disciples against the Pharisees who say, why don't they fast? And Jesus says, well, they don't fast because I'm with them. One day I won't be with them. And that will drive them to fasting and praying together. They will long for me to return and be here again with them. And so that's the question for us is are, are we driven to pray for the coming Lord? Are we driven to pray to be with King Jesus? Your kingdom come. Our faith might be made sight. The second perspective is that we pray for us to live out the coming kingdom through us. Right now. That God's kingdom would come through his people, his church, as a bright light in a dark world. That our lives would be the evidence of this coming kingdom. And so, whether we're praying your kingdom come as the future final kingdom or your kingdom come through me through your church through all who would testify in your name the ultimate acknowledgement of that that line of that prayer is the authority of Jesus the authority of God and the kingdom perspective or worldview that we use to guide our steps so Jesus says pray for that pray for that before we get to the next one, have you noticed so far that halfway through this template of prayer, that uh, it's, it's all been about who we're praying to and not yet what we want or need? I believe intentionally that there's a, 
an aspect of acknowledgement of who we're praying to, certainly. But I also believe that that's purpose in a way that allows us to then grow in our, in our faith and our confidence of knowing, God, you can do all things. I want to admit that. I want to, I want to say that and declare that because what I'm about to give you is a pretty big thing. And so I want to acknowledge that you're capable of handling what I'm about to give that, confident that you're more than sufficient to meet my need. And in practice, I really think this is what we see in Acts 4. Peter and John have been pulled before the Sanhedrin. They've been put on trial uh, for preaching Jesus in Jerusalem. And the Sanhedrin says, stop, we will arrest you. No more preaching Jesus in the streets. And so they return to their friends. And you and I might be tempted to initially just sort of pray out, you know, Lord, rebuke them. Lord, uh, let us. Lord, I can't believe we're being persecuted in this way. Not Peter and John. That's not how they prayed. They prayed, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Let's remember who we're praying to, Sovereign Lord. And now that we've acknowledged that, Grant your servants to continue to speak your words with boldness. Who we're praying to, followed by what we are praying for. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And now this first petition. Give us each day our daily bread. If we're being honest, I would say most of us don't pray like this. Most of us don't pray for daily provision, do we? I would say most of us probably wake up every morning knowing that we already have our bread. We already have our water, our clothes, our shelter. And obviously we have brothers and sisters around the world who pray this every morning desperately. So do we? Do we need to? Should we? As Pastor Andrew would say, I would hope north and south, not east and west. All right. I would say more than ever we need this, primarily because a prayer for daily provision is a prayer recognizing God alone as the only one responsible for meeting our basic physical and spiritual needs of that day. I think sometimes we get busy and we pray, Lord, just, just get me a paycheck this month. Lord, um, see me through to retirement. Lord, I've got four years of college ahead. All of these things... Give me, I want, I know you can do it, and I'll check back with you later. But the model requires daily dependency. It, it's one that alludes to God's provision of manna for the Israelites in the wilderness, in Exodus 16, each day. It's one that alludes, I think, to the new mercies that are given every day in Lamentations 3. It's a guard against self-sufficiency. And pride that consumes us when we aren't reminded that all we have is of, by, and from the grace and goodness of our Father. The, um, the Barna Research Group, we've talked about them before. They do a lot of great research surveys. And they did, they did one specifically on um, Americans. Did one specifically on Americans. And uh, note, looked at the importance of prayer and the frequency of prayer and the time devoted to prayer. And what they observed is over the last decade, it has significantly decreased more than any time since they've been taking uh, their surveys. This question also was based on, do you pray once a week? So I, I can't imagine what it might be if it's a daily prayer, particularly a provision. 
But I would guess that one of the primary reasons, maybe there's several, but one of the primary reasons uh, for this is that we have convinced ourselves that we don't need God to get through our day. That we, we're, we are responsible for the good fortune and great joy in our lives. While God is my God, I'm a Christian, I provide for myself. So give us our daily bread. It's essential for gratitude and dependency. And here Jesus teaches this next one. This is a convicting one, but this is, this is, a, this is not just taught here. It's taught throughout other passages of Scripture. And forgive us our sins. That's the good news. For we ourselves forgive everyone else who is indebted to us or who sins against us. E. Our Father offers us a pardon when it comes to our disobedience, our, our daily failures of words and attitudes and actions and thoughts. And yet, it seems to come with a qualifier, doesn't it? It seems to come with an important caveat that we often maybe conveniently overlook. The Lord's forgiveness is conditioned upon our willingness to forgive others. Vertical forgiveness is dependent on our horizontal forgiveness. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted against us. In essence, I think Jesus is saying, he's implying that the one who holds grudges, who harbors vengeance, who willfully refuses, willfully refuses, doesn't even attempt to forgive others, is technically demonstrating a fundamental insincerity in asking forgiveness for their own sins. You say, well, why would I say that? Well, I say because Scripture is clear. Sincere followers of Jesus are called to imitate, however inadequately, but to imitate God's mercy and grace. We think about Ephesians 4.2, be kind and tenderhearted toward everyone, forgiving everyone as God in Christ has done for you. Be the same as, just like God in Christ has forgiven you. And so when we refuse to forgive, we have refused to admit how much greater God's grace on us has been than any amount of mercy we can extend to anyone else. And so important. This is why that daily prayer of this, this reminder, Lord, forgive our sins. We know we failed, but also allow us, give us strength to forgive someone else. I'll tell you, too, just to sort of a, insert the scheduling note, and this will make sense. This week, this Tuesday, we're going to begin uh, the Table Talk conversations and podcasts back. And uh, we'd love for you to join us on that. And I mention it right here because I'm almost pretty certain that this idea of conditional forgiveness is going to be one of the subjects that we're going to talk about. So we'd love for you to join us on Table Talk on Tuesday. All right, so the final aim of this template, lead us not into temptation. God does not lead us into temptation, but God can lead us out of temptation, away from temptation. We pray for discernment. We pray for discipline. We pray for the strength to avoid those circumstances and those situations of the temptations that most entrap us. We know our weaknesses. Lord, lead us away from those today. As the psalmist wrote, we are prone to wander. Father, protect our hearts. Protect us from chasing shiny things today. Protect us from being seduced by the world today. Protect our minds. Put others in our path today who are going to encourage us, who are going to hold us accountable. You are a great shepherd, and we want to follow your lead. And so this pattern of prayer, it's really simple. 
But when we start to pray it, when we start to work through it, just each day, how impactful it can be on our lives. And he, he doesn't stop here. It, what he does is he, he gives us was one of the patterns of prayer. And he says, in fact, let me teach you two more lessons. Both of them involve some parables. The first is this. It's a lesson about persistence. Persistence in prayer. He said to them, which of you has a friend? will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. All right, whenever we hear a parable, we, we want to put ourselves back into the, the, uh, the, the place, the ears of a first century listener. Who was the original audience here? And what would they have known about this that helps us make more sense about this? Well, one, they would have known that it was very common for travelers at this time to wait until the sun set. Uh, before they began their travel. So that would have been very common. It was also very common uh, for them, because food wasn't readily available, to arrive hungry after a long travel, and usually late at night for this. And so we have this guy, and he arrives at his friend's house at midnight. And unfortunately, the host has no food. That's another thing. They would have known that bread was baked daily, and that if you were lucky, you had enough loaves to sort of get into the evening or maybe the next morning. But apparently, our host here was not lucky. And because hospitality is such a big deal, he had this major dilemma. He could either choose to be a poor host, or he could choose to be a poor neighbor. He chose door number two. And so he goes over to his neighbor's house, and he knocks on the door of a neighbor who was asleep in his one-room home, all of the family, wife and children, on one large mat, all right, uh, they're, they're under the covers, the candles are out, out for the night. We're down for the night, nobody's getting up. Everything's quiet. Knock on the door. All of a sudden, the guy on the outside says, friend, which is really a good way to start if you're waking up your neighbor at midnight for a piece of bread. <laughs> Especially said it's just one thing to wake up dad, but moms and dads, think about waking up the two-year-old that you just spent two or three hours trying to get down in the first place. Amen? Amen. So this guy is irritated. He says, don't bother me. I'm not getting up and giving you bread. And Jesus says, just because this guy is his friend, which is maybe a question now, but just because he's his friend, he still won't get up. But he will because of the guy's impudence. His, some translations say boldness. Some translations say persistence. Literally, shamelessness. This guy is so shameless that he just keeps knocking and knocking and knocking. And the man inside finally gets up, gives in, gives him some bread. Here's the other thing about parables. When we hear them, we immediately start to say, okay, somebody in the parable is me. Somebody in the parable is God. Hmm. And I imagine the disciples are looking around thinking, okay, I think we're supposed to be the guy on the outside knocking for bread. Does that mean God's the grumpy guy inside saying, go away? That doesn't sound right, does it? Is Jesus saying, if you want something for God, just keep bothering him. Keep banging on the door. Eventually, he's going to get up and give in. That doesn't sound right either. No, the point of this parable is in how Jesus told it. He told it was specifically the emphasis from the guy on the outside knocking. The whole parable is taught from this guy's perspective. We can totally disregard the guy inside with his family sleeping. For the purpose of this parable. 
All right? So you can, uh, you can set him aside. Jesus asked us to focus on this guy knocking, and he says, he frames this in, in a question. We kind of miss that sometimes, but he frames it in a question. Sort of basically what he's saying is, can you imagine being so bold, so annoyingly relentless to go to your neighbor's house at midnight just to ask for bread and to keep asking? It's as if Jesus is painting a guy of a, a picture of a guy who just doesn't know, you know, the social lines to cross or not to cross or what social boundaries he's supposed to establish. Do you, do you guys know anybody like that? Are you somebody like that? <laughs> you may not know if you are. Yeah. All right. But imagine that level of impudence. He's clueless. He thinks, ah, surely my neighbor's got bread. He won't mind. I'm going to go knock. He'll give it to me. We're all going to be fine right? Jesus says, this is how we're supposed to approach God. The God who has everything possible to meet our needs, who can do anything he wants at any time he wants, he invites us to approach him with this level of boldness, shamelessness, persistence. I mean, honestly, how, how clueless does it seem for us to sing how great is our God creator of the universe, and then yet still bother him with our petitions. God, I know you got a lot going on down up there. There's a lot on your hands, but I need you to listen to me. I got something on my heart, and I want to share it with you. And I'm going to keep sharing it, and I'm going to be back tomorrow sharing it. It sounds ludicrous, almost. And yet Jesus says, when you pray, be as invasive as you want. Our Father delights in the boldness to bother him. And yeah, I don't know if that's the right word, to, to bother. No, it's a negative connotation, I know a lot. We, nobody wants to be a bother. But think about it this way. If I'm traveling and I call home to my wife, Christy, and I say, well, how's it going? And she says, oh, it's been a really rotten day. I've got some things that are really heavy on my heart, but I don't want to bother you with that what i'm not going to say is whoo good <laughs> whoo that's the last thing i need <laughs> no no i'm going to say bother me because i delight in being the one you bother the things on your heart i'm so glad she doesn't go to someone or some place or some something else with what's the most important thing on her heart, she comes to me. Otherwise, it'd be the sign of a very unhealthy relationship. He invites us to bother him. Be shameless and persistent. And then he says, finally, I got one more, one more principle for you guys. It's a promise for prayer. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. In short, this final lesson of prayer is one of faithfulness for us and goodness of God. He tells us, be faithful in the asking, the seeking, the knocking. You know, in the original language, this phrase actually carried with it a tense of uh, continuation. So it truly is the keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking every day, never stop. And I know many of us are thinking, and many of them must have been thinking, I've been faithful to that for a long time, and my it hasn't been given, found, or opened. And I think Jesus anticipated this. 
He knew of our discouragements and maybe our doubts when it came to this promise. And so he tells this last parable in response. When a fa- what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, what parent among us, the unrighteous, the fallen, the human, would ever give their child something hurtful when they ask for something good? I mean, and, and if even we know how to do that, how much more do you think our Heavenly Father desires to give that which is good to his children? See, the promise is one of encouragement, uh, reminding us that God's timing and his gifts and his plans are perfectly good. He is concerned, and he will, as, as Pastor Beatty said, he will allow us sometimes the ability to carry those books down the stairs with him, to answer the prayers of the temporary needs that we have in this world, even though he doesn't need us. He's concerned about that, and he will address them. But we also have to remember, and Jesus makes clear in this parable, that God's greatest concern is that of our eternal hope that of our soul even in the language of the parable the greatest of these good gifts is what the indwelling presence of the holy spirit there is no better good gift than this he says keep trusting because of course our father is a good gift giver be persistent believe the promise father keep trusting with an eternal perspective first and foremost So they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And to that, Jesus on this day, at a certain time, provided a pattern for prayer, daily prayer. It called a shameless persistence and a promise that we can trust in God's goodness. And so just three quick ideas that I think maybe we can try to apply this in the week ahead. The first is this. Pray Luke 11, 2-4 daily. Pray it from your heart. Reflect on each word. And I would suggest, I'd encourage you to memorize it first. And as you move through your week, start to add your own words, uh, your own needs. Start to personally uh, identify those in your life that you want to honor God, that his name would be hallowed. Start to identify those in your life that you need to forgive. Start to identify the daily provision that is necessary. Number two. Reflect on the level of boldness and persistence for which you come before God. Modify if necessary. Ramp up if necessary. Just consider and think about the frequency, the intensity, the intimacy in small things, in large things. And then three, relative to ask, seek, and find. If you are someone, again, who's not yet a follower of Jesus, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Uh, There is a gift of grace that we would pray for you, that you would receive, and that you would find. That would be the it to your questions. And again, it is our greatest privilege, our greatest responsibility to talk with you about those matters. So let us know if there's anything we can do to be part of that conversation with you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, stay faithful. Keep trusting in the promise that God is working all things out for your good, eternal good, and his glory. Let's pray about these things. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning, recognizing and praising you for who you are and all that you can do. Lord, we acknowledge 
your desire for our attention, for our hearts, for our prayers. We acknowledge your desire that we bother you with our boldness, Lord. May you move us to be a people of prayer. May you give us great strength when in our humanity it's extremely difficult to forgive those who have hurt us. But Lord, let us just keep in mind how you have forgiven us first. Lord, we're grateful for your word, your spiritual daily bread, and we pray that this morning our words have matched those of our heart. And as we lift this up to you, we pray that your, the worship has been pleasing to you and honors you. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.